0: Welcome to Trinity Forum Conversations. I'm your host and president of the Trinity Forum, Cherie Harder. Our desire is to help you wrestle with and reflect on the big questions in life. Like, why are we here? What does it mean to be human? And what is the good life? We lean on the best of the Christian intellectual tradition and elevate the thought leaders, both ancient and modern, who best grapple with these questions and direct our hearts towards the author of the answers. So whether you are pouring yourself a cup of tea and settling into a comfortable nook, hopping on the treadmill, or just starting your commute, we invite you to join us in one of the great joys of life, a conversation among friends on the things that matter most. This episode features highlights from an online conversation with Alan Jacobs that we hosted on July 10th of 2020. It begins with an interview with Alan, followed by questions from our audience. We hope you'll enjoy this conversation on crisis and Christian humanism. Today we're going to hear from our guest about a truly fascinating story the story of a handful of Christian scholars and poets who began thinking around the same time and in their individual spheres about the ways in which the failures and distortions of public education and public thought had contributed to the chaos and the violence of World War II, and together to sketch out the necessary elements of what a full education of mind, heart, and soul might be in hopes of contributing to the spiritual, moral, and intellectual regeneration of the new post-war world. These five thinkers and artists, C.S. Lewis, T.S. Eliot, W.H. Auden, Jacques Maritain, and Simone Weil, didn't collaborate extensively, but they came to the same broadly shared conclusions about the importance of the Christian humanities The immediate success of their vision was, at the time, limited, to be sure. But as our guest, Alan Jacobs, will argue, they were onto something, and their insights hold illumination for our own chaotic time of crisis. Our guest today, Alan Jacobs, is a scholar of English literature, a writer, a literary critic. He's a Distinguished Professor of the Humanities and the Honors College at Baylor University and previously taught for nearly 30 years at Wheaton College in Illinois. A prolific author and a wide-ranging thinker, he's written for such publications as The Atlantic, Harper's, Comet Magazine, The New Yorker, The Weekly Standard, and The Hedgehog Review, and has published more than 15 different books on a wide range of topics from literature, technology, theology, and cognitive psychology, including How to Think, The Book of Common Prayer, the book we're discussing today, The Year of Our Lord, 1943, which was named by the Wall Street Journal as one of their best books on politics for the year of 2018, and many more, including the forthcoming book, Breaking Bread with the Dead, A Reader's Guide to a More Tranquil Mind, which will be available this fall. Alan,
1: welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here.
0: Great to have you. So I'd love for you just to sort of set the stage for the cast of characters in your book. Most of our viewers will be familiar with some but not all of these names, and your work is fairly unusual in tying together the disparate, streams of thoughts of poets, scholars, and philosophers as well. In fact, I saw that one reviewer actually uh, compared your book to an Orson Welles style of directing and pulling together all these disparate thoughts. So who are these thinkers? Why did you pick these five? And given how little familiarity they had with each other, what connection did you see between them?
1: Yeah. So One day I was in my office and I picked a book off the shelf and it was a book by Jacques Maritain called Education at the Crossroads. I bought it years before at a used bookstore, but I had never read it. And I opened it up and started looking through it and saw that these were lectures that Maritain had given at Yale University in early 1943. And I had just been teaching in one of my classes Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. And I thought, well, now that's very strange because The Abolition of Man was also a series of lectures given in early 1943. And then I happened to remember that W. H. Auden, the poet whom I've done a lot of my work on in my career, he was teaching at Swarthmore College during the war, and he gave a lecture at exactly the same time, the end of January and the beginning of February 1943, called Vocation and Society, which was addressed to undergraduates at Swarthmore, trying to help them think about what, what does it mean to have a vocation? What does it mean to have a calling? And how might their education at Swarthmore, liberal arts education, prepare them for that. And it struck me then that it was very, very strange that right in the middle of the war, these three figures were not writing about the war they were writing about education. And, and then I started reading more and I realized, well, this was also true of T.S. Eliot, that he was thinking about education. He was working on his notes towards the definition of culture and then his ideas about the relationship between Christianity and culture, and was also true of Simone Weil. And they were all writing on these themes at the same time. And I thought that was a very strange thing, until I had one more realization and that was that this was also exactly the moment of the Casablanca conference and that was when the leaders of the allied nations got together in Casablanca to start planning for the end of the war and what the post-war world would look like because it was really clear at this point who was going to win. It was the the chances of both German and Japanese victory had declined to almost nothing at this point. So it was really just a question of how long it was going to be. And so that then all of a sudden made sense of it. That's why they're all thinking about education. They're thinking about rebuilding the society after the war. They're asking themselves... What could we do to educate the next generation so that they are not vulnerable to the pathological ideologies that landed us in this horrific world war? And so when you look at it that way, then the fact that they were so concerned with education makes perfect sense. But it was very surprising to me when I first came across it.
0: So you refer to all of these thinkers as humanists, as Christian humanists. Indeed, the Mm -hmm. subtitle of your book is Christian Humanism in a Time of Crisis. So Mm -hmm. we should probably just get definitions
1: straight. What is
0: Christian humanism?
1: Right, right. I should say that I, I wrestled a bit with that subtitle because not all of them would have used that term. Lewis in particular didn't like it. That was because for him, the humanists were primarily a group of scholars in the 16th century whose effect on English culture and English learning Lewis did not admire. So he d- he wasn't crazy about that term. But I finally decided that it was the best general term to describe them all. and And... I think maybe the the best way to approach it is to use a term that Jacques Maritain used in a book that he wrote just before the war. He called this book Integral Humanism. And his argument is this, that usually when people talk about humanism, they're talking about it horizontally. They're talking about the ways in which we interact with one another, all human beings kind of on the same horizontal plane. But, Maritain says, that's that's a, a truncated humanism, a genuine humanism, which he calls an integral humanism, means that we're not only related to one another horizontally, but we are also rightly related to God and rightly related to the rest of creation. So we come into our full inheritance as human beings. We achieve full humanity only when we are integrally related to one another, to God, and to the creation over which we have been given the role of stewards. So that, I think, is that integral humanism is is intrinsic to a genuinely Christian humanism that we cannot understand ourselves fully unless we understand both the horizontal and vertical dimensions of our being. Mm
0: -hmm. So one of the sort of unifying themes in your book is the extent to which all of these thinkers believe that essentially the miseducation of Western societies had been one of the contributors or at least an enabler, you know, of the chaos and violence of of World War II. Mm -hmm. And you open your book with some really arresting quotations from both T.S. Eliot and W.H. Auden on one of the distortions that they see in modern education. And I wanted to ask you about them, just because they, they really do grab the reader's attention. You noted yeah. that Eliot's frustration with what he saw as our eagerness to, quote, provide solutions in terms of engineering for problems, which are essentially the problems of life. And you quoted Auden, who compared the Western world in the 20th century to the Roman Empire, which, in his words, managed to last for four centuries without creativity, warmth, or hope. So I wanted to ask, uh, are you concerned that we, like the Roman Empire, are kind of just pressing on with an absence of creativity, warmth, and hope?
1: The short answer is yes, but I hope that's not a complete answer. I, I think there are other we, we can we can bring in other factors. So the the book is called The Year of Our Lord, nineteen forty-three, and I see nineteen forty-three as this pivotal year. And I think that what we see then is the culmination of a movement that has been going on for some time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then we see that pivoting towards a new way of ordering society. Auden's quote is one that refers to a society that is immensely powerful political and economically, but is spiritually and morally empty and has lost its impetus. This is, as Ross Douthat would say, it's a decadent society, right? And when a society has lost its moral and spiritual impetus, it doesn't have any energies internal energies to draw on, it becomes vulnerable to external forces. And that, I think, is why so many people in the West were so powerfully drawn to both fascism and communism. Fascism and communism, believed in themselves. They believed that they were the wave of the future. They, for, for all of the enormous evil that they perpetrated, they were energetic and confident. And people who were living in a Western liberal society that really no longer believed in itself in any clear way were really vulnerable to, they were attracted to this because it gave their lives a sense of order and meaning and purpose. But then those became the enemies that we had to fight. And when we had to fight, that for a time gave to the Western democracies a kind of energy because we knew what we were against. We were against fascism. We were against communism. But that really isn't enough. That's not just to say that we, we want to destroy fascism, or we want to put an end to Hitler's domination of Europe, that's not enough to sustain you over the long term, and certainly not after Hitler is defeated. And so once the war was over, and by the way, many people who were extremely active in resistance movements in world In World War II. Hannah Arendt has a book about this called Between Past and Future, where she talks about members of the French resistance who, when the war was over, were glad that France was an independent nation again. They were glad that the Nazis had been defeated, but they thought, what do I have to live for now? I have no meaning or purpose in my life anymore. It's all emptiness. And so When that happens, then there's a vacuum, there's a kind of, it's not even so much a power vacuum as a meaning vacuum. And in the West, what happened is that the technocrats rushed in, they said, well, you know, we're the ones who won this war, we, with our tech, our superior technology, we won the war. And so you can trust us to win the peace as well. We will define ourselves as a society by being technologically superior to all other societies. And that was exactly what the writers that I talk about in this book wanted to avoid, but in fact, were not able to avoid because the prestige of technocracy was so high. And it was high for a good reason because it was technocracy that had helped us to defeat fascism.
0: You seem to suggest, and certainly it seems like some of the thinkers you profiled suggested that there was something about the technological pragmatism embedded in education that made students or citizens somehow particularly susceptible both Mm -hmm. to propaganda and to nationalism. And I wanted to ask you about that. Do you see a link between sort of the, the worship of technology And uh, gullibility when it comes to propaganda, or the allure of nationalistic, kind of strongmen, kind of figures?
1: Yeah, this can really cut in two different ways. Sometimes the nationalistic figures can be kind of prophets of technology. And in fact, that was something that both Hitler's Germany and the Soviet Union claimed that they did, the problem was that technological society doesn't mold itself very well to nationalist or communist impulses. And so what you got in Germany was this kind of ideological hatred of what they called Jewish science, which led to all of the Jewish scientists being forced to leave Germany, and they all came to the West and were, you know, essential in the technological developments in the West. And then similarly, in the Soviet Union, you had what was sometimes called Lysenkoism, these kind of biological theories that were anti-Darwinian because Darwin's thought didn't seem to be uh, consistent with communism. (laughs) And so in both nations, you had science having to be subservient to the ideological impulses. And that doesn't work. And the way that we avoided that in the West, in the Western democracies, is to move increasingly towards what we usually call scientism. This idea that science has the power to establish and enforce and help us realize all of our values. And so everything can then just be derived straight from the science. And then we don't need a moral philosophy. We don't need an ideology. We will just, as people like to say today, trust the science.
0: In addition to scientism, uh, what are the other sort of markers, just getting down to brass tacks in terms Mm -hmm. of what technological Mm -hmm. pragmatism in education actually looks like? You know, we are so surrounded by technology. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, a fish doesn't know it's wet. Uh, How do we know that education is being distorted by this? What are the markers?
1: You know, there's so many different things that we could, we could pick out here, but I, I want to just talk about one major theme. And I can do this by picking up on some element of that quotation from Eliot that I have as one of my epigraphs, where Eliot talks about seeing all of the difficulties of life as problems of engineering. Another way uh, that you could put this is the way that the philosopher Michael Oakeshott puts it in a great essay that he wrote in 1947. So it was right after the war. And I actually wanted to put this into my book, but I couldn't get it in. It's called Rationalism in Politics. And in Rationalism in Politics, he says that, you know, our political leaders now are essentially kind of they're, they're political rationalists, which is to say they're kind of engineers of politics, that if you we have social problems, and then if we implement rational policies, that those policies will provide solutions to our problems. And Oakshot says that it's... the whole model of rationalism in politics is built on the idea that there are no intrinsic limits to human life. There is nothing intrinsically tragic about human life. There is nothing that's broken about us that we can't fix, right? But that all of our suffering, all of our pain is then perceived as a problem, and it's the job of politics and increasingly Technocratic politics to provide the solutions. And so that's one of the reasons why so many people think that Aldous Huxley's Brave New World is more prophetic in certain ways than Orwell's 1984, though that may actually be changing right about now. But, but one of the things about, about Huxley is that it, Huxley's vision is of a political order that has developed biotechnological tools, pills medications that will solve our problems and make us content and make us happy. And the genius of of Huxley is to show that when we have the pills that solve, all, solve our problems and make us happy, that's actually not a utopia, that's a dystopia, that we have been profoundly dehumanized in the process. And so to me that what Maritain was great on this. He had in education at the crossroads, he asked the question, how can we educate people for responsible freedom? And to educate for responsible freedom is kind of like the opposite of, of a bioengineered or a techno engineered future. It's the idea, of educating people so that they have the the character formation and the moral maturity to know the difference between a, a problem that needs a solution, and on the other hand, what what Hamlet called the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, right? That there's certain kinds of suffering, certain kinds of pain, certain kinds of frustration, nostalgia, lamentation mm-hmm. that are intrinsic to the human life, and we don't want to eliminate those. We, can, If we eliminate those altogether, we are eliminating much of our humanity.
0: Well, I'd love to hear from you what that looks like, because as you pointed out, all five of your thinkers essentially shared a conviction that, that, I think you put it this way, the renewal of Western civilization will be achieved largely through the practices of philosophy, literature, and the arts, and I and betting it's not a coincidence that you included at least two poets i guess lewis was also mm-hmm. a poet you mm-hmm. know among your thinkers what does this look like in the real world how would this education sort of unfold
1: well you know, this would be a great opportunity for me to give a pitch for the Great Texts program at Baylor University here in the Honors College where where I teach. But it, it, seriously, it's something that we are trying to do. And it's something that that we tried to do at, at Wheaton College when I taught there. There is this sense that you you want people, you want to have students who are scientifically literate, who are numerate as opposed to being innumerate. We want people who understand science, who value science and are grateful for all the things that it has done. But we also want those to be people who have uh, a a rich and complex sense of, of how extraordinarily diverse and complex human life is and how complex we are internally and how complex we are in relation to one another. And I think a lot of those, that that understanding of the complexity that we have within us and that we have in our relations to one another, that's really what the arts dramatize for us. I mean, you can study psychology and sociology and you can learn about that. But in In the arts, you see it dramatized in a way that brings it home to you in an incredibly vivid way. This is why when Robert Coles, a psychiatrist who taught for decades at Harvard University, when he started teaching classes in uh, Harvard Medical School, his classes used only literature as their text. He wanted he wanted doctors not to be technicians, but to be physicians, to be healers. And this meant that they needed to understand the complexity of human life and also of human suffering. So he wanted all of his med students to read Tolstoy's *Death of Ivan Ilyich*, you know, and then when he then when he started teaching a similar class in law school in at Harvard Law School, he would teach Dickens's *Bleak House* so that people could understand how the law can hurt rather than liberate people, and and everywhere he, he did this, he did he did a class in Harvard Business School. He went around, and these classes were full to overflowing with students. He had hundreds of students in these classes because they were. Cr- Craving some understanding of what they felt they had been called to do that was not merely technical and mechanical.
0: I took one of those classes and it was exactly as you say, full
1: to awesome. That's great.
0: So, in the last few minutes before we turn to audience questions, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the fact that one of the, the chief concerns that your five subjects really dealt with, thinking and education seems to mirror one of your own personal and professional concerns which is thinking and thinking well uh, most of us who are watching this program are out of school and yet you know, have a responsibility for our own continuing education and you wrote a book entitled how to think which gives a few guidelines to people essentially struggling with it whether they know it or not you know mm-hmm. in a fairly chaotic and confusing time mm-hmm. and one of the points that you make is that we don't actually think for for ourselves. You said whatever we think we know, whether we're right or wrong, arises from our interactions with other human beings. Thinking independently, solitarily for ourselves is not an option. So how does one learn to think well in a community, and particularly if you find yourself in a community of fairly lackluster thinkers?
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I really do think the person that I, who I, that I know of who has thought most profoundly and usefully about these matters is C.S. Lewis. I know it's a big surprise that, that I would say that, but he's really great on this. And his views on this subject are stated theoretically in three texts. One of them is The Abolition of Man, which is a book about moral formation as essential to intellectual formation. And then there are two lectures that he gave, one is called The Inner Ring, and the other is called Membership. And what he says in The Abolition of Man, in The Inner Ring, and in Membership, all of that is illustrated fictionally in his novel, that hideous strength. There, it's just all of those ideas are are embodied there. And I think that distinction that those second two that those two lectures that I mention make those have not often enough been understood in relation to one another. They are a pair. The inner ring is about how you lose your ability to think when you are connected to the wrong people. That is when you are connected to people whose approval you desire but who demand from you obedience and strict adherence to a narrow set of, of ideas that you will not learn to think well. In fact, you will stop thinking because thinking might alienate you from that inner ring that you so desperately want to belong to. By contrast, membership, when he talks about membership and he, he, he explores Paul, St. Paul's notion of the, the mem- many members of the body of Christ, the many organs of the body of Christ. And what is essential to understanding those, those organs of the body is that each of them has a distinctive function. Therefore, there is an extraordinary diversity among them, but all of them are contributing to the health of the body. And in, when that's the case, you don't expect everyone to sound exactly like you who is a member of the same body. You expect there to be some degree of of difference. You expect them to have some, some variety of, of possibilities that each of them is embodying, and all of which are, are, are measured by the way that they contribute to the overall health of the body. And he dramatizes that in that hideous strength in the two characters of Mark Studdock and Jane Studdock. Mark gets drawn into an inner ring, and as a result of being in that inner ring, he becomes less and less capable of thinking. Whereas Jane is drawn into a real community. And as a member of that community, her distinctive contributions are valued. And she has to learn how to deal with people who think things that she doesn't think and who have ideas that seem alien to her. But She develops a trust in the integrity of those people. And therefore, they help her to think and she helps them to think. And for me, that is essential. I always tell students when people come to Baylor, high school students come to Baylor and they're trying to decide whether to go to the honors program, I say, whether you come here or not, what you need to be asking yourself is this, are these trustworthy people to think with? that's what you want in a community of thinking, whether it's a formal community, such as a school, or whether it's your book club or, you know, your reading group or whatever, you ask yourself, are these trustworthy people to think with? Because you're not going to think by yourself. You just get to choose the kinds of people that you are going to think with. And that's an important choice. You
0: had a very helpful checklist for thinking, which you included in your book, How to Think. And I wondered if you would just pick out perhaps one or two of your guidelines and sort of unpack them.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, so deciding who you're going to think with is maybe the most important one of all. There's another one that I would really emphasize as especially important right now is a rule that i learned from a software developer named jason freed jason freed talks about in in a blog post talks about going to hear a talk at a tech conference and he wasn't at all happy with this talk and he couldn't wait for it to be over so he could rush up and tell the guy how he got it wrong and he did he rushed up to the guy and he told him how he got it wrong and the speaker just looked at him and said why don't you just give it five minutes? You know, just just, just sit back and reflect for five minutes on what I said, and then maybe I can hear from you. That was, that, I, I thought that was really great because our social media are set up to prevent us from giving it five minutes, right? I mean, you, you know, people say something instantaneously and then they either regret it later on or else they brazen it out and try to convince themselves that what they said was right and it's it's just giving it anything five minutes. It would be great if somebody would implement a five-minute rule on Twitter, right, or a five-minute rule on Facebook. You're not able to reply to this until five minutes have passed. I think that would reduce the level of hostility by an extraordinary amount, and that leads towards the idea of tranquility, trying to get a more tranquil, peaceful, balanced kind of spirit, which I think we should all be praying for, and that's something that I'm Writing about in this forthcoming book.
0: That's great. So, with that, we're going to turn to questions from the audience. And the first question comes from Fritz Heinzen, who asks Professor Jacobs, if you were to write The Year of Our Lord 2020, Christian Humanism in an Age of Pandemic, what would you be writing about? Uh,
1: that's a, you know, I honestly don't have any idea. I think we're going to have to wait some time before we know who the more important voices have, have been in this particular moment. I, it's certainly not clear to me right now. I think it's been very hard for Christians not to get caught up in the destructive social di- d- dynamics of social media. And so my inclination is to think that the Christians whom we will eventually decide were the most important voices in helping us to understand the pandemic moment aren't saying anything right now. Mm-hmm. That is, they they're thinking it over. <laughs> and I think we'll know somewhere down the line. I- immediate interventions are rarely constructive interventions. And I don't know why it's so hard for us to learn that lesson, but I think it's true.
0: That's fascinating. Michael Lundy asks, Lewis thought a return to a pagan society was emerging and would be necessary for Christianity to regain its appeal. Where are we on that return and when might we expect the revival?
1: Yeah, L- Lewis sometimes said that people said that England was becoming pagan once again, and Lewis said, "I wish, I wish, <laughs> I wish that we were becoming pagan again, because we would be people worshipping gods if we were pagan, mm-hmm. and and it is that world where people are worshipping strange and harsh and in and, and inexplicable gods." that Christianity has an obvious and powerful response to. It's, I, I think it's much harder for us to respond to people. And I think this is the majority of Americans today and many people in the West who have a religion, but don't know it. There's people whose core convictions are religious in character, or mythological in character. And I think that there are a lot of people today whose commitments, they're typically associated with the political realm, that is they manifest themselves in political statements and in adherence to political candidates or else adherence to political movements, but their character is fundamentally mythological and religious. And I think that one of the great challenges for Christian thinkers now is, is first of all, to just accept that and understand that that's the way that people are responding, and you can't interact with them as though they are holding positions that they have reasoned their way to. But then figuring out how to respond to that is, I think, a huge challenge. It's I probably spend more time now thinking about that than anything else. And I'm not really sure where I'm going to come out on this. I, I wish I knew something that I could share right now, but it's really tough.
0: Mm-hmm. Nathan George asks, what essential content and practices can a school implement to foster Christian humanism?
1: I think the practices are more important than the content. I think, I mean, I say this as someone who teaches in a great texts program, and I'm enormously grateful to be able to teach the things that I teach. But I think too often there is a kind of an assumption that reading great works is, is kind of intrinsically ennobling and it isn't whenever you're inclined to think that 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 exposure to great art is morally improving you just need to take about 5 minutes and remember the concentration camp orchestras you know where starving jews were made to play bach and beethoven for the the nazi commandants right they loved Bach and their Beethoven, and they spent their leisure hours reading Goethe. You know, they were incredibly cultured people and horrifically, horrifically wicked. So I think that what we read matters, but how we read is more important. And I think that that's something that teachers should really, really focus on, is trying to get students to be one of the ways that I put it is to be critically generous, that is to be to be critical of what you read, evaluate it, you know, but to be generous, to be open, to truly believe that all truth is God's truth, which doesn't mean that everyone's truth is God's truth, but it means if it really is true, it is something that comes from the Lord, and that means that you can be generous towards people maybe outside our own Christian tradition who nevertheless might have things to teach us, but also a kind of warmly critical spirit, not an attempt to take something down or break it apart, but an attempt to really sift it in order to see, uh, separate the wheat from the chaff. I I think cultivating that kind of readerly spirit is the single most important thing we can do if we are teachers and cultivating it for ourselves is the most important thing that all of us can do as readers.
0: We have a fairly lengthy question from Michael Pepper, who asks, reading your remarkable book evoked this. In the midst of our present disequilibriums, many thoughtful, quote, options have been proposed, e.g. the Benedict option, the Erasmus option, the Walker Percy option, and so on. By definition, all are approximate, seen through dark glass, but live forward we must, even as we note our missteps retrospectively. His question is, to what option might you propose that would best tend and mend our collective brokenness towards integration, unity, and shalom?
1: I'm going to go with the Gandalf option. (laughs) And what is the
0: Gandalf option?
1: Well, yeah, I'm just inventing it right now. So I hadn't thought to call it this before, but it's something I think about a lot. There is a point late in The Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is confronting Denethor, the steward of Gondor. And Denethor thinks that Gandalf wants to be the one to rule Gondor. And Gandalf tries very hard to be patient with Denethor. And he says, my lord steward, you need to understand something. The rule of no realm is mine, neither Gondor nor anywhere else. It's not what I do. I'm not here to rule. He says, I am here to try to nourish and to care for all the good things that I find in this world. He said, when I come across something that is alive and is capable of bearing beauty, then I want to nurture that. And that is my call, he says. And if through this whole mess and misery that they were going through at the time, he said, if anything survives that can flower and bear fruit, in the days after, then my work will not have been in vain. And then he says to Denethor, "For I also am a steward." Uh, and I love that. I love that that line. And I honestly, if I were going to define my calling in just a few sentences, it would be those sentences. And I think that's what we should be doing. We get so caught up in fighting against all the things that we believe to be wicked and and destructive that we fail to nourish and care for and strengthen to feed and water the gardens that we hope will produce fruit for our children and our grandchildren. And I think that is the great failing of the church in the West is that we, we go out charging into battle But we forget to care for our own gardens and that so that's my option. My option is the Gandalf option. So I've never said those words exactly that way, but I probably will use them. You
0: heard it first here. Yeah. (laughs) So our next question comes from Michelle Crouch, who asks, when it comes to thinking rigorously about education from the youngest to the highest levels, its failures and the ways in which we we might strengthen and reform it. Do you have any advice for how to go about forming alliances with the key stakeholders in education and working together on that project? Or is it even possible?
1: I think those, those questions don't have a general answer. They only have local answers. You know, and I think that you know, you can have your, you can have your principles and you can have your ideals, but ultimately what you're going to have to do is negotiate with whatever your reality is. And in some cases you will be in environments where the local stakeholders are not interested in having any kind of conversation with you. And in other places, you will find a kind of a warmth and a welcome, or at least a willingness to converse. And I I just think that everyone in, in answering those questions really needs to, They need to pray for discernment, and I think the particular kind of discernment that they should pray for is to ask that they will be, as Jesus commanded us to be, as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. My my old friend and longtime colleague, Mark Knoll, one of the greatest historians alive today, used to say that the problem with his fellow evangelicals is that most of the time we've been as wise as doves and as innocent as serpents, so <laughs> we, we want to flip that around and follow what Jesus says.
0: <laughs> we'll take one more question from our viewers, and this comes from Alan Poole, who asks, where do you see hope for a rebirth of meaning? in our own deeply divided ideological moment.
1: You know, I, think, I I wrote something the other day where people say, like, these are terrible times for the humanities. And you hear that said all the time. And, and when I hear that said, I often want to correct it and say, these are terrible times for the humanities in the university. Mm-hmm. But that's not the only place where the humanities are right? The humanities are happening right now in this meeting, this this virtual meeting. That is, we have people who are getting together because they care about books and ideas, and they want to grow in understanding, and they want to grow in wisdom. And as long as that kind of thing is happening, then the humanities are in really good shape, even if the society as a whole, especially our educational institutions, are not in favor of it. And I think similarly with the church, and this is something that I certainly saw growing up in Alabama, I saw lots and lots of people who were in church because it was socially unacceptable not to be in church, right? They didn't care about God, they didn't care about Jesus, but they knew that it was just one of the markers, the necessary markers of being socially respectable is that you had a church that you went to, and if somebody asked you, you know, whether you were a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian, you had an answer to that. And all of that is disappearing and it's disappearing fast. And I think that's great. I think that's great because what it does is to take away the situation that Kierkegaard was so upset about in his attack upon Christendom, his sense that there were all of these people who in in his native Denmark, all of whom really, really believed that they were Christians because they were from a Christian country, they were from a Christian culture, and none of them had ever had a thought about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so to remove that illusion that's a good thing. And this was, of course, Pope Benedict's motto, right, is pruned, it thrives. And that is, the church is going to have to go through a pruning. And when it does go through that pruning, then it will thrive in the future. And I really believe that. And that's where my hope comes from.
0: Alan, thank you so much. I'd love for you to close us out with a last word.
1: So I want to say two things about the protagonists, the five protagonists of my story. The first thing is they failed. They failed to achieve what they wanted to achieve. They wanted to transform education in the West to take it away from rigid technocrats. And that didn't work. And yet, here we are today still learning from them, still drawing upon their wisdom, finding ourselves grateful for what they teach us. And I think that's something for all of us to remember. We may have our goals and our sense of what counts as a success or a failure, but God may very well have good things in store for us if we remain faithful and may use us in ways that we never imagined.
0: Thank you for listening. We'd love for you to subscribe to Trinity Forum Conversations on your favorite podcast platform and to share this episode with a friend. More information on today's program and show notes are available on the Trinity Forum website at www.ttf.org. Until next time, we wish you the gift of great conversation.